And thanks again, everybody. And it is Monday, and you and I are here. And I want to thank all of you for writing to my email, bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink, earthlink.net. Bingo at earthlink.net. But yesterday, and I printed this out, I got an email from somebody in Olney, Illinois, saying, what about that show you did in Anchorage, Alaska? Well, I did do a show in Anchorage, Alaska, and I went through the files, and I thought, I don't think I ever ran it here, but maybe I did. And if I did or I didn't, and in case you missed it or you never heard it or I didn't run it, here it is. I feel fortunate that I've been to all 50 states, but some of them I went to only briefly, like my 18 hours in Alaska. I spent most of it in Anchorage, although did drive a while outside the city to see some of the wonderful scenery. My host at the time was a noted Anchorage newspaper man, and we started the interview downtown. In downtown Anchorage, a beautiful museum dedicated to the history of the 49th state, I walked around with newspaper columnist Mike Dugan from the Anchorage Daily News. We talked about the state, its lifestyle, its traditions, and about the museum. This is quite a building here. We're halfway up a flight of steps, and there's a little little observation area here. Looks down on a fountain, a lot of coins being thrown in. One of the things that impresses me, and my listeners know I love to eat, is that this is one of the few museums I've been in which has a nice enough restaurant that people come here just to eat. Yeah, they've done, the, the Alaska History of Museum and Art um, has done a good job with with this facility. It, it It's one of the many sort of public buildings that you'll find in Alaska that's a tribute to the Prudhoe Bay oil money. That's where the funds came from to build it. Um, And they've discovered um, along the way that they have to do a lot of different things to be able to finance the day-to-day operations. And and the restaurant's one of those things. And um, as a matter of fact, if, if you were up here and you wanted to get married in high style, you could have your wedding reception right here in this atrium. That's what I've been told. This is kind of a grand staircase. Let's go ahead up the steps. There's so many things I want to ask, and that's the problem with doing a, a quick visit anywhere. I so often find myself walking into a city and spending the night doing an interview and then leaving, which unfortunately is the case here. Mm-hmm. What, what are... Let's, let's start on the downside. What are the misconceptions people in the lower 48 have about Alaska that you'd like to dispel? Well, um, I'll tell you this story. When I went outside to college in the late 1960s, um, people found out I was from Alaska. They immediately started asking me questions like, do you live in an igloo? And being young and naive, um, I told them the truth, which is, no, I don't. I, I live in a house. And, you know, proceeded to give them sort of the straight dope about what it's like to live here. 
Um, and after I began to notice that they went away disappointed, I simply began agreeing. Yes, we do live in Igloo. We have a split-level Igloo. We commute to, um, to school by a dog sled, and, and they, not only did they believe it, they went away happy. <laughs> and, and there's a certain, I think there's a certain kind of um, attitude in what we call outside, which is any place it is in Alaska, that like, where people like to think that this is sort of the rugged, um, last bastion of the wilderness. And if you get outside town, you know, you can see where they think that. But most of us live in cities, about 75% of us live in cities. Um, and uh, in places like Anchorage and Fairbanks and Juneau, the life isn't too much different than it is in a similar sized city anywhere in the United States, except for the weather. In downtown Anchorage at the beautiful Alaska Museum there, we're talking to Mike Dugan. He is a columnist for the Anchorage Daily News. He writes a column about Alaska and Alaskans. Before the break, we were talking about the travel distance up to Alaska. I mentioned to him that unless you get a globe, it's really difficult to tell where the state is. Sometimes they, they put it on a different page, and it's hard to tell the proximity of Alaska to the Pacific Coast. You get a map, the typical map of the United States, and you think Alaska was was just to the south of Hawaii, which yes, is where they the generally ocean. put us in. You know, it's a sort of a subtropical kind of place. But but it's really, for example, from from the west coast, uh, time wise, not that much farther away than going to the east coast. Um, a little shorter, I think. If you're flying from, generally speaking, if you're flying from Seattle to Anchorage, it takes you about three hours now. I think it's slightly longer to get from, say, certainly from Seattle to New York, but even sure. L.A. to New York. Um, but you have great air connections up here. Now, we, we are in not quite winter yet, and uh, the temperature this afternoon is around 6, mm -hmm. 6 or 7 the degrees. Balmy 6. But it's not it's not windy. Now, needless to say, your tourist draws, except for winter sports and cross-country skiing, are going to be springtime. In the southern part of Alaska here, how moderate does it get in, in the good weather season? Well, it, when you're in Anchorage, where, which has what they call a coastal climate, the weather's sort of moderate both ways. So if you get a 70-degree a, a day, for instance, in the summer, it's pretty hot here. Um, but generally speaking, from May on, if you get anything cooler than 50, it's pretty cold. And so most of the temperature here in Anchorage is going to be in that range. Mike, what paper you work for here, and what, what is your role as a columnist, commentator? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the Metro columnist for the Anchorage Daily News, which means that they, uh, the slave drivers I work for force me to write three columns a week um, about pretty much anything. You, you mentioned the fact that those of us who have not been to Alaska before, and this is my, my first trip up here, uh, do have those preconceptions that it's an icebox. Uh, Canadian friends of mine say the same thing. They resent people saying, ah, oh, you know, how do you ever go outside? It's, it's a darn cold. But the Hilton, where I stayed, is, is comparable to any other big city hotel. The downtown is a little bit more intimate. Uh, because it, it is not it's a quarter of a million people, but not as big as, as some areas go. I presume most of the issues politically and, and otherwise you deal with here are fairly similar to other cities of this size. Yeah, there's there are a few differences. We, we're having a problem right now, for instance, with moose in, in, in the downtown areas. They 
um, have been wandering around in increasing numbers. You're not talking about the Moose Lodge here. No, no, I'm, I'm talking about those big, uh, ugly, ungulate <laughs> animals um, that most people are probably familiar with from the beginning of Northern Exposure, that old TV program. But, but we have, there's an increasing number of automobile accidents where people are hitting moose. They come through and eat people's trees and make them mad. And so there are some sort of peculiarly Alaskan kinds of issues here. Every once in a while, a brown bear gets loose in downtown, and the police have to shoot it. Um, but the rest of it is all, yeah, those, the municipal politics are all pretty much the same, zoning and garbage disposal and road maintenance and that kind of stuff. We're on what you might call the the veranda or the mezzanine level of the second level of the museum here there's a great gallery of photos around here i always love historic photos the the thing that uh, interested me in talking to uh, uh someone before we went on the air here is the fact that the city of anchorage is a new city we're talking about 1915 so all of the early days there, there's photographic evidence of, of when it was not here at all that's right this was up until actually about 1914 this was a this was a an outwash flat of a couple of rivers um, and it wasn't until the federal government decided to build a railroad from um, open water which in this case is seward up to fairbanks in the interior that that this place even existed and what happened was people who wanted railroad jobs came and squatted down in the mud flats along ship creek and when the government finally decided that that was going to be a hazard, they set up and platted a city. And so the, the city, which originally was called Ship Creek Landing and is now called Anchorage, began officially in 1915. Um, and one of the things you'll notice about it when you, when you come here is that the downtown part is very orderly because it was designed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And it's, it's a straight grid. Um, it's really easy to get around downtown because it's almost impossible to get lost. Well, now, you may know where I'm going with this, but I noticed last night in the numbering and lettering system, you pay tribute to Washington, D.C. here because there's no J Street. Uh, yeah. Or did I miss it? Oh, no, there, there is no J Street. And which we don't have in Washington. It goes H-I-K. Well, it, part of the theory was that there were so many people of Scandinavian descent here that they wouldn't be able to, to, to say J anyway. They'd say so, Yay Street. Yeah, they'd, they'd, they'd say Yay Street. And so um, <laughs> I, I'm not exactly sure why it doesn't exist, but we've been getting along without it now for a long time. Well, so. we have a joke in D.C. We tell people to turn left on J Street and they can't find it. <laughs> I mentioned to Mike that at one part of the uh, museum, the walls are covered with photos of the original families who settled Alaska. You're still really pretty well in touch with your history here. My own uh, father, who was born in on Douglas Island in 1914, is still alive. Um, and so you can still go and talk to people who remember Anchorage when it was just a bunch of trees and sort of remember the state from an era um, that's long gone by. Um, and, and people do. You know, they go down to the Pioneer Home. There are oral histories that have been recorded, um, and there's still a lot of interest in, in that early history. We're spending time in Anchorage, Alaska, with a knowledgeable guy who can answer just about any question. And I'll have more for him after the break. (laughs) 
Save money and time by shopping with TOC Direct Mail. It comes to your mailbox every week and includes great buys on what you need and what you want. Look for TOC Direct in your mailbox this week. Welcome back. This time around, a show I did in Anchorage, Alaska, with a very knowledgeable guy, Mike Dugan, with the local Anchorage newspaper. And I was just full of questions for him. Were there many what we would call Native Americans in in this region? Was this a fairly desolate section of coastline, or does some of the heritage go back to that also? There was this this part of Alaska was um, was in the custody of a group of Athabascan Indians called variously the Tanina and the Denena. Um, there really wasn't a part of the Alaska coast that didn't have Native Americans on it. Um, and the, and the, the ones on the coast generally did better. The, the food was more plentiful, the climate was a little bit better, um, and they had more trading opportunities, and so they generally did better than the interior Indians. What was the, the role of the federal government here before Alaskan statehood? Maybe we should spend some time talking about that issue. Uh, obviously, Alaska was very important for natural resources. It was very important for the defense of the U.S. Uh, uh, with uh, the evolution of aircraft, Elmendorf Air Force Base. We even mm-hmm. see the president refueling here quite often when he goes to Asia. But what precipitated the move from within Alaska to join the Union? And were there people who thought that the state would be better off remaining a territory? Oh, yeah. Um, there was, uh, as a matter of fact, the newspaper that I worked for, the Anchorage Daily News, was founded in part to oppose statehood. The, the, the guy who founded it, a guy named Norm Brown, who was a job printer here, thought that statehood wouldn't be a good thing and Alaska would be better off remaining a territory. And so, in part, he founded that new, his newspaper to oppose statehood. Um, and there was some opposition, although at the time of the vote, um, the, the, the Alaskans voted overwhelmingly to become a state because what their experience was that in order to get anything done in Alaska, you had to get a decision made in Washington, D.C., and that was difficult to do even if there was an opposition to it. It was a long way away, and in those days, pretty much you had to get on an airplane and fly there, a propeller-driven airplane, and fly there which was an expensive and time-consuming proposition. And they thought that if they got statehood, they'd be able to get more control of their own sort of economic and political destiny. Now, there are people who will today argue that that hasn't happened, that, that the federal government is still such a big landowner here in Alaska and has so much power that they're still going back hat in hand to Washington, D.C. Now, this would have been uh, late 50s? Uh-huh. It was uh, Alaska, and Hawaii came in, what, same year, year after? It, they were, it was a simul- actually a very nearly simultaneous ad- admission. I believe they flipped a coin to decide which would be the 49th state and which would be the 50th. And Alaska won, I guess, because um, <laughs> it's the 49th state and Hawaii's the 50th. But yet, shortly after that, in 64, you had the devastating earthquake here, and I guess you could debate it one way or the other, but one would like to think that uh, a lot of the support you got afterwards was because of the fact you were in the Union. Or maybe it would have been the same had you been only a territory. Well, at, at least um, initially I think it would have been the same. The response to the, the, the initial response to the disaster, um, a lot of it was the, was the United States military um, that came in and sort of bailed people out. Um, and I don't think that would have changed. But 
there were things that 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 people got because Alaska was a state, which are primarily small business loans and other and, and other kinds of things that allowed them to rebuild. That I don't think they would have gotten had it been a territory. Mike, what was that like? Uh, I understand that you were not in Anchorage; you were in Fairbanks when uh, when the earthquake happened. But it, you know, we saw coverage of it, uh, and we're walking into yet another area of the museum here. Uh, this is interesting because it's a globe that shows the way the early peoples came across uh, in, into this area when the Bering Strait, they assume, was frozen over. But uh, what, what was that like uh, psychologically and, uh, and in other ways uh, when that quake happened in 64? I mean, we've seen terrible photos of that. Well, it was, for one thing, it was strong enough to knock me down on the street in Fairbanks 400 miles away. So it was a big, a big shake. Um, but... It didn't really, I'm not exactly sure how to explain this. It, it, in Anchorage, for instance, it beat the devil out of several parts of town, um, some of which um, are now part of the inlet and were never rebuilt. But it didn't really seem to bother the people here that much. They just sort of picked themselves up and and kind of continued. And, and, and Well, maybe dealing with harsh weather hardens a person to, uh, to adversity. There's something in that. If you are a regular listener to American Montage, you know I kind of have a tradition of going to Key West during the Halloween season. The end of October, the beginning of November, we've been up and down Highway 1 in Florida a lot of times. Well, this time I went to another Highway 1 almost as far north as you can go. Anchorage, Alaska. We are the guests of the Anchorage Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Hilton Hotel, and the Museum in downtown Anchorage. We're talking to Mike Dugan. He is a columnist for the Anchorage Daily News. Before the break, we had begun to talk about the devastating earthquake that hit the Anchorage and the South Alaska area back in the 1960s, and I continued my conversation with Mike. Well, now, the classic photo we, we see of, and I'm picturing it in my mind, it's probably somewhere here in the museum of cars falling into a crack in the street. That was 4th, pretty much the main drag here? Yeah, 4th Avenue, which was the main commercial street, I think, even at that time, um, was hit pretty hard. Um, it was built primarily over a substance called bootlegger's clay, which liquefied, and buildings just literally fell into the street. Streets cracked, streets dropped, cars fell, mm. facades of buildings fell. Um, it was a heck of a mess by the time it was done. And it looks as if some of the buildings literally, as you say, fell straight down, as if the ground just gave way from under it. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the case. In fact, there are a couple of buildings now that are, that are built in what they think are heavily earthquake-prone, earthquake-damage-prone areas that are built basically to do just that. I got distracted as we were talking. There, there's a beautiful miniature here. I, I've always envied, for example, in D.C., the Smithsonian, some of the, the people who build those exhibits are absolute artists. Here we have a representation of, uh, of Eskimos uh, at the end of a whale hunt pulling a whale up onto the, uh, the shore. It's in snow. The figures are probably two and a half, three inches tall at most. Uh, just a, a gorgeous little, little piece of work. What kind of comments do you get, particularly from children who come through this museum? I, I know there are a lot of, I'm sure, grade school and high school tourists come through here to, to look back and realize that this is the way it once was here. Well, kids love this kind of stuff because it, I think, kind of gives them an idea of what life was like before they were around. And I've noticed, for instance, here that kinder, little kids like this because there's blood on the whale. You know, I mean, that's the kind of thing. But. <laughs> But in, in sort of attempting to represent what life 
used to be like here. There's a lot of different ways you could have done it, and and I think that you'll find farther on, for instance, there are exhibits. Okay, let's of, let's walk a little little farther. Of, you know, of arrowheads and harpoon heads and the rest of that, all of which are great. But these little dioramas, I guess they're called, mm -hmm. really speak to kids in a big way because it lets them look right at something and and see what it was like. Oh boy, look at this. Yeah. Here here is the inside of uh, would you call this a hut? Uh, thatch. Uh, this is this is, I think, one of the old semi-underground houses that they that that were built um, for as a winter habitation. Um, I think this is an alley -oot. Yeah, and, Ali, and this this is I will say for radio this is life size and we're able to look in it with a huge sheet of plexiglass over the front it lets you get right up to it but you can't touch the exhibit itself. Yeah, this this is the way folks used to live um, out in the Aleutians where they didn't have much wood to build with and where the winds are so strong that um, literally it rains sideways out there and snows sideways and uh -huh. so they they built these semi underground dwellings as a way to deal with the wind um, and and lived in them and it, these replicas are all as authentic I think as they can make them yeah it's absolutely wonderful work T to digress a little bit we were talking about how young people of course do not have a concept of what went before them it's mm -hmm. like explaining to a young child what it was like when you and I heard that John Kennedy was shot right. uh, unless you were there it doesn't mean anything it's mm -hmm. ancient history but even in the Midwest there were parts of America which did not have electricity until after World War two mm -hmm. uh, what was it like up here you, you still I guess have a lot of small places where they have to generate uh, with small plants their own electricity are there still places out uh, in in Alaska where uh, all of that infrastructure isn't yet well there's a lot of places for in, in which for instance they don't have functioning water and sewer systems um, and uh, villages in particular where they get their water from either from the river or from a central watering point where they where they deal with um, sort of human waste with what they call honey buckets which are essentially containers that they carry out um, there are some places which are the electricity they have are is is um, sort of generator driven so they're paying tremendous prices for fuel oil um, it's it's expensive and difficult if you live outside the urban centers in Alaska it was fun to have Mike Dugan tell us all about Alaska after all he talked about his family's heritage he was the editor-in-chief of the Anchorage newspaper and then he retired and decided to represent Anchorage in the Alaska State Legislature. And that's what he does today. I'll tell you what I do every day, and that's take a break. Have you ever missed one of your favorite local shows on WAOV? Ever missed the morning chat, Mark and Mark, or even financial questions, real answers? Well, that's not a problem anymore. WAOV has our local shows on podcast and easy to get to them. Go to WAOVAM.com and click on the podcast tab at the top to find your show. It's that easy. So if you miss Vintage Vincent, legal news or views, or just the tips, listen to the podcast the next day. Go to WAOVAM.com and find your podcasts. Welcome back. Welcome back. My special guest is Mike Dugan, who became the big man at the Anchorage Daily Newspaper and now represents his area in the Alaska State Assembly. I had a lot of questions to ask Mike. One of them related to the fact that in a historic uh, native Alaskan house we were looking at, 
there was something very out of place. You know, I'm trying not to laugh here, but in the midst of all of this, and I'm, I'm certain someone might have to explain to a small child that in this in this Aleut house, that that smoke alarm up there is not standard equipment. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that they had painted those. it brown or something. Yeah, I'm not sure they had those smoke alarms and sprinkler back then. systems yeah, in and, there. and the sprinkler systems. But I, I expect the museum's got a ton of money invested in this. Now, there's a large exhibit back here again, life size of, of two people in a, uh, I guess you'd call it a kayak. It's all it's all sealed. Obviously, one's holding a spear. Uh, they're they're hunting some form of waterborne fish or or mammal is and i shouldn't ask this right after this wonderful lunch you guys served of salmon fishing is still a major part of what alaska is about is it not yeah fishing is one of the biggest employers in the state um, it employs not just fishermen but um, thousands of people in the summer in processing plants um, used to be all canneries now in sort of more increasingly uh, freezer plants um, but in terms of just numbers, it's a big employer, and it's an important part of the economy. Mike, I've got so many questions I want to ask. I was noticing in the Alaska Airlines timetable that there are several cities in Russia which are now served uh, mm -hmm. from, from here. Obviously, geographically, this was all one part of land at one time. It was the Russians who sold Alaska to the United States in what was mm -hmm. called Seward's Folly. Secretary of State at the time? Yeah, William Seward. And they said, who'd want to live up in that icebox? Uh, are we seeing much closer ties now with the people on the other side of the strait, if for no other reason than the, just the easings in the Soviet Union? And how important commercially do you see that coming to you? Well, it's a the sense of what they call the melting of the ice curtain, which would have happened roughly in 1989. Um, there's been a lot more travel back and forth between the Russian Far East and Alaska. And we are sort of their access to, to the West. And so there are cooperative agreements between universities. There are commercial ventures going on back and forth. Well, if nothing else, a common heritage. Right. And, and there, is a, there is particularly among the native peoples a common heritage. Mm. Um, you know, so there's a lot of um, close ties. But the fact of the matter is that in terms of direct trade, they produce about the same things we do. You know? and, and they're looking more towards places like Japan, which need raw materials. And in fact, in some cases, fishing is an example. They're competing with Alaska. So, so it's a mixed blessing for but us. But in, in some aspect, would you say in a way it's more just symbolic and friendly more than anything else, more, more than being essential. It's just it's about time we did this. Oh, yeah. And, and the Russians, um, the experience for Alaskans going to Russia has just been terrific. Um, people come back with what is a well-known um, malady here called Russia fever. You know, they go over and just fall in love with the people. I was over in Magadan, I guess, in 1993 and had a terrific time. Um, and so on a person-to-person -person level, it's really been a wonderful experience. Well, Mike Dugan, here we are in a more modern times exhibit. We're getting into some photographic areas. Uh, boy, this is something here. I wish, wish it were television because I could better describe this. It shows an early highway intended for automobiles that... I wouldn't even want to try that in a four-wheel drive. It's just a rut up, up through the mountains. This was it's the Valdez Fairbanks Trail, which is now called the Richardson Highway, and it was built by the military to link the fort um, at Valdez with the fort actually at Eagle, Alaska. And, and they got about halfway up there and they discovered gold in, in Fairbanks around the turn of the century and they diverted it and, and ran it 
to Fairbanks. Um, and this is um, sort of a primitive version, and, and actually a lot of the trails here are fairly <laughs> primitive still. What I hear this exhibit shows uh, the importance of the railroad, uh, mm -hmm. as you just mentioned, and also here's, a, here's an early seaplane. It's a biplane with pontoons on the bottom. I know a lot of people see seaplanes and can't figure out why. Uh, for example, you look at LaGuardia Airport in New York, which still has what's called the marine mm -hmm. terminal section. Years ago, it was much easier to land on water than it was to build a long runway. Yeah, and particularly in southeast Alaska, it's only fairly recently that, that, the, that the commercial aircraft haven't been seaplanes. And the same thing is true here for light planes. You'll see in the summer um, a lot of people operate on floats because they can find a lake to set down in where they can't find a runway. I would take it a lot of Alaskans own aircraft. Yeah, this is one of the sort of per capita, I think, the flyingest place in the nation because the distances um, are pretty great here and there aren't a lot of roads. The, the story here is that there are two highways, one which runs from Anchorage to Fairbanks and the other that runs from Fairbanks to Anchorage, and that's about the extent of it. Mike, over here, uh, some great photos of railroad construction, uh, building uh, a bridge across a huge gorge. And, and there's also, this is called a snow shed. It's a man-made kind of a, well, I guess the only thing I could compare it to would be a covered bridge in the Midwest to keep, what, the, the avalanche of snow off the railroad tracks? It's, it's a long garage almost. Yeah, that's what it is. It's, a, it's actually a sort of a snow diverter. Um, the in avalanche chutes where they were they they didn't have a, a chance to do anything about it or build away from it they put one of these up so that when an avalanche happened the snow would go sort of over the track kind of skip across right. yeah. yeah and they'd still be able to run the trains underneath yeah you can't uh, dismiss the importance of the railroad is it true that on the trans-alaska railroad it kind of stops by request can can you explain how that works um, it, yeah, they, it, it's called a flag stop, and basically there are a lot of people who live along the railroad route uh, who have no other access. And so if you're living out there in a cabin and, and you need to go to town for something, what you do is you walk out to the tracks, you've got a schedule so you know when the train's supposed to be coming by, and flag it down. And if you flag it down, they stop, you get on. It goes on. How about that? We were talking about transportation there, uh, some, some great photographs. There is, of course, Elmendorf Air Force Base mm -hmm. here, and Merrill Field was the original civilian airport. How new is the International Airport here? The International Airport was, was opened in the, in the um, mid-50s, I guess. Is, is right before statehood. R right before statehood, and, and has been expanded um, ever since. And it is... Um, sort of an important part both of the state's history and its, or the city's history and its economy. At one time, if you were flying over the pole um, between um, the United States and Europe or the United States and Asia, you stopped here. Um, since they built sort of higher capacity 747s primarily to take people, it's since become a freight center. Uh, Federal Express has a big operation here and what they're doing is consolidating loads and transshipping freight between the United States and, and Asia. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's a, always been a fairly big deal and of course the military bases were important during the Second World War as, as both because the Japanese had invaded the Aleutians and as staging areas for the Lend-Lease program to Russia. Also I would presume during the Cold War uh, strategically, it was very important to have your your eyes and ears open here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, there's a couple of um, um, bases where they were running out in the Aleutians at Shimya, in particular, where they were running fairly routine reconnaissance of 
of um, eastern Russia. Mike, here's a, a copy of the newspaper. This is a, an extra edition of the Anchorage Daily Times, and this is Monday, June 30th, 1958, with a huge headline that says, We're In. Yep, this is the paper that was um, issued as an extra after Congress um, approved statehood for Alaska. Um, and it's a, it's a famous headline here in, here in the state. The, the newspaper itself, the Times, is no longer in business. Um, but it was, um, it and its publisher, Bob Atwood, were big supporters of statehood. And so when they finally got what they wanted, they really blew it out big, as you can see. <laughs> so, and next to it here is this, are the signatures of the people who wrote the Alaska Constitution. And if I'm not mistaken, my dad is right there. Well, look at that. James P. Dugan. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike Dugan, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk. I promise I'm going to come back sometime. It's not just going to be an overnight. I'd like to take the uh, the passage on the uh, the cruise ship and come up the coast. Maybe I hear that's dynamite. Oh, heck yes. And besides, you've never been to Alaska unless you've caught a salmon. That's true. Michael, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I probably saw less than one half of one half of one half of one half of one percent of Alaska. But even that was pretty darned amazing. Alaska, the 49th state, and I finally did get to all 50. Back with a surprise from the archive in a moment. Within the last half hour, there's a good chance you were on your smartphone. Or there's a good chance you were on your laptop, tablet, or desktop searching the internet for some much needed information. As a business owner or manager, You've got products and services, and you need to reach new customers. We can help. TOC Direct Digital can help build you a custom digital campaign. Just email digital at originalcompany.com. That's digital at originalcompany.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. We have about 10 minutes and 11 seconds left, and I want to play part of an interview I did at a party in New Orleans. What a great place to have a party. Remember when everything racked over to the year 2000 and everybody made a big deal about it? Well, the Corbell Champagne Company started celebrating early. In early 1999, I visited California wine country and did a show from the Corbell Champagne Works. While I was there, the CEO told me that his company was making a major investment in the coming New Year's. You know, the millennium? They would be traveling the U.S. with practice sessions for New Year's Eve. I went to the kickoff city. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to this week's program. We're on the road again, and that's what I like doing best. We are in one of America's busiest and most fun party cities. We are in downtown New Orleans, across from City Hall in what is called Duncan Park here. And in just a moment, the Big Easy New Orleans is going to be the site of the first official New Year's Eve party, 11 months in advance on this week's program. And when we talk about partying, we're talking about champagne, of course, toasting the New Year and the People at Corbell have put together a wonderful display, the world's largest champagne bottle, a van that has a stage that rolls out, and a couple hundred people are here in New Orleans to celebrate and to uh, practice for New Year's Eve 1999, including the mayor of New Orleans. So let's go up to the stage. How are you doing today? Practice 
party. I'm so excited to be here. We have a couple of special things for you today, and one very special person. To christen the celebratory event, the mayor of New Orleans is here to read the official mayoral proclamation. Before that, we're going to show you the world's largest champagne bottle for the first time in New Orleans. So get ready. Ready? And this champagne bottle is taller than I am. Whoa! And now we'll hear from New Orleans Mayor Mark Moriel. The official proclamation. Good. Thank you very much. New Orleans, you all think you can handle this bottle of champagne? Marshall! On Mardi Gras Day, right? Marshall! On what day? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are very, very proud that New Orleans is the first site on the Corbell Millennium Party Tour. This very special bottle of champagne, which is the world's largest and was crafted by glassmakers over in Europe, uh, is going to visit cities all across the nation with a destination at Times Square in New York City on December 31st, 1999, and January 1st, 2000. But we want all of you to know that since we are America's number one party town, number one party town, that uh, New Orleans is the first stop on the tour. So let's, let's put our hands together and thank Corbell for choosing our city to be number one. Now, we have a very special proclamation that we want to, to, uh, to present, but the purpose of Corbell's tour is to encourage people to think and share their thoughts about the millennium, about the 21st century. So we're just proud that we're chosen to be first on this wonderful tour. And it is therefore with great pride and pleasure by the powers vested in me that I hereby proclaim the January, the 26th day of January, 1999 to be Millennium Practice Party Day in the city of New Orleans. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We're going to do a toast? We're going to do a toast? We want to present you with this. Hey, can we raffle it off? <laughs> <laughs> can we raffle it off? For your engagement. Oh, thank you. But I want to share it with all my friends. That's right, baby. I want to share it with all my friends. So you know, you know what I'm going to do? Today's your birthday? You got some ID? We'll take his word for it. ID! 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 Check it out, check it out for me there. Well, that's your credentials, baby. <laughs> Madam Chairwoman with the Corbell hat on, check it out for me. <laughs> She's acting like the chair lady, so. I dance is from a birthday. Congratulations. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm accepting this uh, with pride and pleasure, but I'm accepting it today. We're going to raise our glass and we're going to toast. Corbell, the California Champagne, and the city of New Orleans, a great champagne, and the world's greatest city on a beautiful day. Here, here!
the mayor of the city, Mark Moriel, giving a big toast and opening up the uh, the party atmosphere here in New Orleans well in advance of Mardi Gras. And I ask him about the familiar feeling the city of New Orleans has. So many people have been coming up to him, not saying Mr. Mayor, but calling him by his first name. People in New Orleans are very personable, and I think it's just a, a tradition. Uh, people call you call the elected officials they have some affection for, I think, uh, by their first name. And then, it's New Orleans is a big city, uh, but it's also a tight-knit city. So people tend to know each other and, and be, uh, be very friendly with each other. Well, here you are. First, you've got some security here, but yet people are coming up to you. It, it almost has a small-town atmosphere in that regard. Yeah, we do have, in a sense, a, a good sense of small-town atmosphere in a very good way. Uh, it's a, it's a personal, personable city. My roots are here, mm -hmm. so I never go to an event uh, in town where I don't see somebody that I know or that someone in my family knows or who's connected with somebody I know. And that, that's what makes New Orleans special and I think very different. I think it's a tribute to the city that Corbell picked this. I mean, we're talking oh, about yeah. a party, a good time thing you, to start here. It's great to kick it off in New Orleans and probably great to end it in New, New York, <laughs> which I think between the two of us, we probably have great party reputation. So we're excited about the... Uh, uh, the fact that we've been chosen, and I know that the people appreciate this. This is probably going to go a long way for Corbell. One other quick thing. Uh, Mardi Gras, of course, synonymous with New Orleans. A little late for this year. But for people listening who've never been, how's the best way to make plans? Uh, are, are we at a year in advance now? I mean, is it still possible no, to find it, a place this sometimes year? Sometimes it's still possible to find places even this late. I think the best thing to do is to use a travel agent who can canvas the availability of rooms instead of calling one hotel and getting frustrated. Uh, use a travel agency. Many people come here by car. Some come with RVs. Uh, people come by train, by bus, and also by plane. So I don't think it's ever too late. It's not too late to come this year, but if you really want to plan a gala time, plan in advance, and I would really strongly encourage using a travel agency. The other thing, you can call the New Orleans Metropolitan Convention and Visitors Bureau, and they'll provide you with information on Mardi Gras. I had a friend who flew into Baton Rouge last year in order to get here, but it worked. Probably made his reservations late, but, you know, Baton Rouge is... Uh, Oh, about an hour away, and uh, I know some airports that are an hour away from the downtowns of some major cities. Yes, very much. Mayor, thank you very Thanks much. A lot. New Orleans Mayor Mark Moriel. We turn now to several people from Corbell putting together this uh, very ambitious project to travel around the country this year. Andrew Varga is the brand's general manager for Corbell Champagne. He lives in Louisville, or Louisville, if you will. I asked him how he got uh, connected with a company that's California-based, even though he lives in the Midwest. Well, I actually lived in California for four years out at the Corbell Winery, and just... Louisville's the place that I live now, and it's uh, uh, nice to be able to go back and forth to California. I still spend a lot of time out at the winery, and um, basically I learned a lot out at Corbell about how to market the brand and what the brand was all about, and I've just been fortunate to be in Louisville. That's where my family is, and uh, it's really uh, been a nice experience to kind of have the best of both worlds. Do we know how far back Champagne goes as far as being that festive kind of uh 
celebrating thing? I believe it goes all the way back to the 17th century, uh, and it, it's something that people have been recognizing for so long that champagne is a part of celebration, and Corbel Champagne has been a part of America's great celebrations for over 115 years, and obviously with the millennium coming up, uh, this is just such a great opportunity for the premium champagne of Corbel to be able to help Americans celebrate a major milestone in their lives. Thank you for inviting us here, and uh, I'll check in with you as your trip progresses. Thank you very much. Practicing for New Year's Eve? Well, a lot of people had fun in New Orleans. I surprised a lot of my friends in other parts of the country when I told them that in Vincennes, you can celebrate New Year's Eve and then, no, oh, 45 minutes later, waddle on over to the other side of the river and do it again. See you next Monday. And my email is bingo, hasn't changed, B-I-N-G-O at earthlink.net. And Bob, yeah, what do you want? please don't say goodbye this time. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it for this week. I want to again thank the radio station for giving me, well, I pay them back. It's a swap, I guess. It's what we used to call a trade-out. This hour on Mondays, and to everyone who's come up to me at McDonald's and everywhere else and said, I heard your show. Well, that makes me feel wonderful. And I will see you next week. <laughs>